Good morning, Harvest. Merry Christmas. When I was thinking and praying through what the Lord would have for us this morning, I was reminded that this is a, uh, a very busy time of the year for us, isn't it? For some, it's a, it's a happy time, even peaceful. Um, but for others, it's a very difficult time, plagued by memories of past and even present trials. But regardless, I think we can all agree that as we enter into this season, this time of year, we're all very, very tired and weary, even in, in need of some rest and comfort and encouragement from the Lord. And so uh, this morning, because it's Christmas weekend, uh, we're going to go and look at, at three realities of the manger. How many realities? Three realities of the manger from which we can have great comfort from. So grab your Bibles, turn to John, John chapter 1. We're big about the Bible around here, so if you didn't bring a copy of God's Word with you, I'd invite you to go ahead and grab one from the seat back in front of you there and turn to page 886, John chapter 1. Now some of you um, have seen the title of the sermon, Comfort in the Manger, and might be wondering, well, why John 1? After all, Chris, there's no mention of a manger in John chapter 1, and that's true. I'll also admit that there's no mention of Mary and Joseph. There's no mention of a baby, a stable, or wide-eyed farm animals waiting with bated breath. There's also no little boy playing pa-rumpa-pum-pum on his cute little drum. Or the angelic voice of Whitney Houston singing, O Holy Night, as beautiful as that is. There's not even a stirring rendition of Silent Night being sung in perfect harmony by pentatonics. I mean, there's none of that in John chapter 1. But that's not John's primary concern in this gospel. John is more concerned with the theology of Jesus' birth than he is with the narrative of Jesus' birth. Or I might say it this way, John is more focused on the activity of the Godhead than he is on the activity of the characters within the storyline. And we'll see that here in just a moment. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time here in verse 14 of John chapter 1 this morning, uh, for I see that as the centerpiece of the entire introduction of John, and we'll see the, the, the three realities that come from that and the comfort that we can have as, as a result. But before we do that, we need to take a step back and try to grasp a more panoramic view of verses 1 through 18 because that will help and enhance our understanding as we get into verse 14. So let's do that now. I'm going to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Follow along if you would as I read. And the word of the Lord says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which comes, or which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How tragic. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now verses 1 through 18 comprise what's known as the prologue of the Gospel of John. It's, it's really the introduction. In a lot of ways, it's kind of like the, um, the abstract from a technical paper where John is introducing some, some key words and some key themes and phrases. Words like uh, the word, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Light and life and darkness, all of which he, he then uses to develop his, his argument in this, in this abstract or his thesis. And here's how I would summarize John's thesis in this abstract. It's this, Jesus is the son of God. That's it. Because if this is true, if Jesus is the son of God, then it changes every aspect, every facet, every detail of every life in the world. And then John, starting in verse 19, he uses the rest of his uh, paper, his technical paper, uh, to prove his thesis that Jesus is the son of God. So with this in mind, this thesis, this, that Jesus is the son of God, let's now enter into verse 14. Let's do a deep dive, if you will, and let's see how all of this can be of great comfort to us this morning. So verse 14, the first five words, and the word became flesh. All right, you know how after we've um, heard something over and over again, um, after a while, it uh, kind of becomes dull, or we become dull to it, even desensitized to it. Um, it's kind of one of those in one ear, out the other kind of a thing. Um, well, in this case, I think sometimes we can do that with these five words in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. And when it becomes dull to us, or when we become desensitized to it, then we tend to miss much of the richness of the meaning of the text. In fact, John's usage of logos, or the word here, has some vast, almost limitless implications for us. So let me just call your attention to a few of those so that we can see what John is bringing to the table here in the word became flesh. First implication, the word is personal. The word is personal, or you might say this way, uh, the word has personhood. Look back at uh, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So in the beginning was the word. That means that, that before existence, the word was. 
or the word pre-existed existence. That's cool. John here is making a statement of the words eternality. So this is a statement of eternality. We also see, though, that the word was with God. And this word with doesn't just mean that the word was standing next to God or side by side to God, but it actually carries with it this relational aspect. So the word is in relationship with God. And so John's making a a statement of community here. The word is in community with God. We also see in the last part of verse one, in the word was God. So the word is, is equal to God, the word is God, yet distinct from God. And this is a statement of equality. So you take, you take the eternality, the community, and the equality that John is bringing to, to us here, and that comprises the personality of the word. The second implication of this usage of logos is that the word is functional. The word is functional. Words themselves have power and purpose. God has designed it that words would be the primary means by which we communicate. And because of that, words do have power and purpose behind them. In Genesis chapter one, the very first words spoken in the history of mankind, God said, God said, God said, God said, he verbally spoke creation into existence. By the words of his mouth, all of life sprang forth. We see that God also verbally spoke with Adam and Eve. And even after the fall, God verbally spoke with those he chose to speak with. God also ordained it, though, that some of his words would be written down. And that's what we have before us in in the Bible this morning. It's God's written words. It's the written word of God. And interestingly enough, the Bible talks a lot about the words of God bringing life. And so we see with the verbal words of God literally bringing life, we see in Isaiah 55, the prophet is equating or using rain as an example of God's word and the rain flows from heaven down into the ground and waters the ground and out of which springs forth life. So whether it's the verbal or the written words of God, they bring life. And because of that, they also have power and purpose. Now you take the personality and you take the functionality and you wrap them in swaddling clothes, lay them in the manger, and that's what we have here before us in the word became flesh. This is the manger scene. These five words comprise the manger scene. And if that's not enough, if that's not mind-blowing enough, look at verse four, John brings, or yes, verse four, sorry. John brings in something else. He says, in this word is life. So all of the Old Testament references and discussions about God's words bringing life, now we see life is in the word that's laying in the manger Add to that, if that's not mind-blowing enough, the fact that also in verse four, John says that this this word is light. This is important because sometimes I think we view God 
as if he's just this divine light, this bright light. He's trying to attract us like he's some divine bug zapper waiting for us to just mess up, zap. But actually, John's saying that this is the antithesis of that, that this light actually brings life, which is the word, which also has personality, which also has functionality. So the word is the living, breathing, divine manifestation of God's words to mankind. The question that comes from this then is, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why would he take on human flesh? And I actually think the answer is rather simple because it's the only possible conclusion. God loves us. So this morning, the manger reminds us of God's love for us. I mean, this has to be true. Nothing else would make sense. For why would an unloving God leave the perfect throne room Take on human flesh that was so characterized by mankind's depravity. That makes no sense. It has to be that he loves us. And in fact, God's word speaks over and over again of God's love for us. The Psalms are replete with examples of that. God's unfailing, undying, never ending, always there love for us. And in the New Testament, just a couple of chapters to the right here, in John chapter 3, we find the, perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Christians and probably most uh, atheists at least know this verse. For, for God so loved the world that what? The Word became flesh. That was a trick question. The Word became flesh. God so loved us that the Word became flesh. Flesh. So the manger is God's demonstration of all the love that God has for us. That has to be truth. So dear friends, this morning, some of you may be feeling unloved and unwanted. Some of you may be struggling through some immense physical and emotional pain with no end in sight. Some of you may feel like you're carrying the whole of the world's burdens on your shoulders. One of my favorite passages about God's love is Romans 8. For I am certain that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus. In the manger shows us this indestructible and inseparable love of God. And that should get us excited this morning. But John's just getting started. Look at the second part of verse 14. And the word became flesh, manger scene, and dwelt among us. Uh, This phrase, dwelt among us, literally means he tented With us. And for John's Jewish audience back in the day, it would have evoked thoughts back to a time when God was tabernacling with the Israelites in Moses' time. God's desire was to to dwell with them then, 
And here we have John telling us that God's desire is to dwell with us now. So it's a then and now reality in which we live. And this, of course, would have been a great encouragement for John's audience as well because the Old Testament tells us over and over that Israel was stuck in this perpetual do loop of God dwelling, Israel rebelling, God punishing, God promising, repeat, over and over again. In fact, one of the last books of the Old Testament uh, that was written um, was Malachi. And in it we see again, in the midst of Israel's rebellion, God is again promising to send a Messiah that would dwell with them. And then guess what happens? Silence. For over 400 years, God is silent. Century after century, there is no new verbal or written divine revelation from God. 400 years of silence. And during that time, it was some of the darkest times of Israel's existence. It was filled with great turmoil and great persecution. People wanted to just annihilate them and wipe them off the face of the planet. And I wonder if if during those days, the, the faithful followers of God, and there were some, rest assured, there were some faithful followers of God during those times. I wonder, did they ever question the presence of God? Where are you, God? I wonder if if the Psalms of, of Lamentations were continuously on their lips. Like Psalm 10, why, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where are you? Or Psalm 13, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Don't you care? Psalm 22, God, God, why have you forsaken me? All day long we're being led like sheep to to the slaughterhouse. Why, why have you forsaken me? We live in dark times as well, don't we? And all of creation suffers, especially us in this darkness. Sometimes we're in the very throes of the suffering. It just does not feel like God is present, does it? And this is why I love the Psalms, because it's God's permission for us to cry out to him. He wouldn't have put it in the pages of his word if he didn't want us to cry out to him, God, where are you? Will you forget me forever? Don't you care? For some of you here today, you may be feeling this way. Where is God? I just don't feel you, God. Where are you? When our first daughter was born, um, she was born very prematurely, um, almost three months. And um, I have to admit, that was a very dark week for me. Sorry, guys, I've been hanging out with Pastor Doug too much. Um, That was a very dark week for me. There haven't been very many in my lifetime, but that was one of them. And I remember sitting next to Jen's bed 
in the hospital and she was suffering physically and emotionally just through it all and just feeling, I felt completely helpless. There's nothing that I could do, not a single thing. I couldn't change the outcome. I couldn't change the situation. And I felt alone, I was filled with questions. Is our daughter gonna make it? Is my wife gonna make it? It just didn't feel like God was there. Didn't feel the presence of God. You may be here this morning going through the same doubts and questions. You don't feel the presence of God in the midst of your immense suffering that you're enduring. It's okay. It's okay to cry out to God. Hey, it's okay. God wants you to. God cares. He loves you. Cry out to him. But remember, know this, helplessness doesn't equate to hopelessness. And this morning, we can look to the manger because the manger reminds us of God's presence with us. The manger is an ever-present reminder that God has only forsaken one, and it's not me, and it's not you. The one who lay on the wood of the manger is the one who hung on the wood of the cross, forsaken by God and everyone else, so that you and I would never have to be. But it gets better than that. God doesn't just want to dwell with us. John is actually saying that he wants to be in community with us, which is far better than just having someone's presence. John wants, is saying that God wants to have the same community that the word and, the God, and God have that we saw in verse one. And this is a massive paradigm shift from the Old Testament, massive. The fact that a holy, awesome, unapproachable God would come to be in community in relationship with such an unholy, unawesome, depraved people is of itself a testimony of God's desire to be with us and his love for us. And it all started right here in the manger. And that should be immensely encouraging to us. So after our daughter was born so prematurely, um, there was a period of time in which we just weren't able to hold her, touch her even with our bare hands. And so uh, Jen and I would sit next to her in uh, her incubator and uh, I would just count the seconds and the minutes waiting somewhat impatiently for that time where I would get to, to take her in my arms and hold her. Even uh, there were times I even thought she'd turn her head a little bit, wink at me. Hey daddy, I love you. It's okay, be patient. So finally the day came and uh, got to hold her and um, something amazing happened. I thought that holding her would uh, just be an immense comfort to her and I'm sure it was. She wasn't really speaking then. 
But what amazed me was, what, what I didn't expect was that how much of a comfort it would be to me. Just having her presence in my arms, close to me, the picture of relationship, how much that was of comfort to me. And she was just a baby. Of course, this is just a human illustration of the immeasurably great comfort that we have in the presence, from the presence of God. Of course, Jesus is not physically with us for a time, but we still have the manger as a reminder of his presence and the Holy Spirit as an empowerment of his presence. So dear friends, let's take comfort in knowing from the manger that God is with us always and forever and he has not forsaken us even when it feels like he has. Here's the third comfort in the manger. Look at the last part of verse 14. And the word became flesh, manger scene, and dwelt among us, community scene, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When I used to think of God's glory, I used to think of it as this radiance, this Shekinah glory, if, if you will. It's a, this bright light. The glory that was so fierce that Israel couldn't even enter into the tabernacle. And certainly those are magnificent displays of God's glory and quite frankly that would be enough. But is that what John means here in this text? Is that what John is talking about? I mean, did, did Jesus really walk around so bright that people could barely behold his face his entire life on this earth? Well, certainly there were times where, where Jesus would peel back the layers of his humanity so that we could see glimpses of his divinity. Uh, the transfiguration would be an example of that. And John must have certainly had that in view and in mind when he wrote this text here. But I think there's something else that John is pointing out as well. There's actually an allusion here to a time where God revealed a whole nother depth to his glory to Moses. It comes from Exodus chapter 34. Israel just sinned with the golden calf. And Moses now has come before the Lord to try to appease him because the Lord, quite frankly, was just ready to obliterate Israel. And in, in that conversation, Moses says, Lord, please show me your glory. I want to see your glory. And God responds in a very cool way. This is how the Lord responds. Verse five of uh, chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. That's pretty cool. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord was proclaiming the name of himself. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression 
and sin. And this is an amazing encounter with God. Amazing. Because in addition to God's radiant glory, God's teaching Moses and us now about a whole nother depth to his glory. He's saying that his very attributes themselves reveal his glory. And so every attribute that God has that we see manifested and displayed in our lives and in the lives of others is revealing God's glory. And here in verse 14, we see that that grace is actually a parallel with God's love and faithfulness from Exodus chapter 34. An encounter with the glory of God is an encounter with the grace of God. So this begs the question, then, what is God's grace? Well, when applied to this text, the word that became flesh and was laid in a manger manifests the undeserved, glorious favor of God. One commentator says this, Nowhere do we see more clearly what the grace of God means than in the word made flesh. So, the manger reminds us this morning of God's grace toward us. What are the implications of this then? What does this mean? Well, since God is infinite, then God's grace and all of his other attributes must be limitless. They know no bounds. God's grace abounds. And so the implications in our lives are vast as well. God's grace helps us to see him more clearly, to know him more deeply, and to walk with him more closely. And this means that every breath we take, every beat of our hearts, every hair that falls from our pretty little heads, every blink of the eye, Every fiber of our being all testifies to this grace that we have before us in the manger. It also means that each time we cry out to God in agony or suffer silently from the confines of our soul, each time a husband manages to tell his wife, I forgive you, or a wife, to her husband, I forgive you. Each time we make it through a horrific family struggle or or tragedy, each time we endure the wounds that come from the words of others, and each time we fail and fail miserably and pick ourselves back up, dust the dirt off our clothes and press on, all testifies to the grace of God. God's past grace floods our present reality with hope. And God's present grace sustains us in hope. And God's future grace causes us to realize this hope in eternity.
So this morning, John chapter 1, verse 14, he gives us three comforts in the manger. The manger reminds us of God's love for us, his presence with us, and his grace toward us. And these, dear friends, are reasons to press on in our toils and our struggles. He loves us, he is with us, and the full measure of his grace sustains us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we stand before you this morning and our hearts are fully open before you and Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you love us and that alone should be enough, but Lord, you're also with us and that alone should be enough, but Lord, You've given us your grace. And so, Lord, this morning our cup is full. God, help us now. Help us to understand. Help us to to trust. Help us to endure. Help us to come out of this Christmas season with a renewed strength and vigor and resolve to follow you more closely, to love you more dearly, to know you more deeply. So Lord, this morning we rest. We rest in all the comforts of the manger. And we thank you and glorify you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.